It is maybe the best dumb argument ever. You might not be familiar with it. It's not significant, but it is entertaining. And it's the war over Hans Island. It's not a war you may be heard of, but it has a nickname. It's called the Whiskey War, however you feel about drinking. And again, it is the best dumb fight in history. From 1933 to 2022, it just got resolved. Canada, the whiskey side, and Denmark, the schnapps side, engaged in the friendliest war and entertaining dumb fight of planting flags and leaving bottles for the other nation to find over what is effectively moral rock. 55 acres and about 500 feet give Morro Rock a flat top, and you have Hans Island. It's a little bit like if Monterey County extended all the way down to the 41, and they were arguing with Slow County over Morro Rock. No blood was shed wonderfully. They just had a constant capture, or rather plant the flag battle, of this resourceless, insignificant island in between their two countries, until finally, in 2022, somebody managed to get them both to agree to the obvious solution, cut it in half. And the best dumb war ended. I kind of wish it would come back, to be honest. But after years of tongue-in-cheek skirmishes, that was the conclusion, a 1970s, 80s, and even 90s sitcom episode of draw a line down the middle and all things will work out. Sadly, most conflicts aren't this tame. It's not just planting a flag and trading a gift. Nations fight wars, families fracture, friends drift apart, and of course, churches divide. Sometimes, it's from serious and important issues. There are battles that matter, and there are battles that must be fought. But too often, it happens because of preferences and opinions and trivial matters especially within the church. Within the church, there are battles that must be fought. But Baptists, as great as it has been being a Baptist and growing up Baptist, there are so many Baptist denominations, not because of significant battles, but because of dumb fights. We are the best at this, and it's not something to be proud of being the best at. And of course, every one of those battles, somebody was convinced it was something worth dividing over. So Paul finishes the Romans road and his section on sanctification with a long discussion of handling conflict. It's over a chapter, all of chapter 14, and it rolls into chapter 15. Of course, he didn't put those chapters in there, but the content amount is massive. It is all one argument about conflict. And if you want another road comparison like I did last week, the Roman road now turns into the 166, a a tricky stretch of road requiring a delicate dance between drivers, and when it goes wrong, it goes horribly wrong. I'm going to read that massive section, and then we're going to refer back to it, so you've got to remember this, pay attention to it, you can open your Bibles and follow along, I'm in the ESV. You can open your Bibles and keep referring back to it. I'll reference the verses, but probably won't read each of them when we come back to them. So you just need to catch it now. It'll be up on the screens for you as well. 
As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. He starts off verse, verse 1 in chapter 14 by identifying the weak one. Now, he doesn't focus on this, but he does identify it. And we always, of course, consider ourselves the strong one. 
But he says the weak one is this, the one who can't. He's talking about particular things, disputable matters. But the one whose freedom and grace is restricted on things that God does not weigh in on. He's not talking about what God's made clear of do and don't. He's talking about God didn't say anything on this. We have to infer from what Scripture told us. We have to use our minds, the ones that we engaged in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that are being transformed. We have to think through, does this honor God or does it not? Do I have the freedom to do this or don't I? But Paul weighs in at the beginning. It's not a major theme in what he's talking about. The weak versus the strong is, but not who is weak and who is strong. But he does weigh in here at the beginning and then a couple times throughout, and he makes it clear. The weak one is the one who can't. Where God has not weighed in, The weak one is the one who is not able to enjoy freedom where God left freedom as an option. But then, and this is his focus, he says, welcome the weak ones. Bring them in. And not to persuade them, just welcome them in. This isn't to fight. It's not to engage or entertain the conversation. You can have the conversation when it comes up. But it isn't to cause it or bring it about. It's not to instigate it. It's to welcome them in. Some of us on social media, by the way, need to remember this. Pastors in particular. Little side, by the way. Have you noticed how many passages of Scripture are directly related to tech and social media use? That's not what it was written for, but it certainly applies. And if you're unsure about that, go read Proverbs in particular. It's like it's talking about how we present ourselves to the world and engage with each other. This would be another one about that. In talking about opinions, disputable matters, these aren't clear commands. But the problem is we always think our stance is from a clear command, don't we? When we're arguing with somebody face-to-face or remotely by tech, we are convinced we know for good reason what we're arguing about. There are a few of us that just like the engagement of debate, and again, like I said, some of us pastors need to remember these premises when we engage people, not just argue for the sake of arguing. But most of the time, we're arguing because we think we have a reason We just aren't very good about discerning our reasons and our opinions and our upbringings from what God actually said. We love to take a verse that isn't talking about something, attach it to something we're convinced it's talking about, and then insist everybody else lives by it. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. You're convinced, but God really didn't make a statement on this, which means we should hold it in pencil and loosely, and instead, we etch it into stone, put it on as the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th commandments, and tell everybody else to have to live by it. He says, no, we're talking about opinions. Even if you're convinced of them, it's still opinions. Verse 2 says, one's free to eat anything. Ken just mentioned this, yay, bacon, because that literally was not on the menu before Christ for the Jews. But now it was not only bacon, but all of the meat products. And I've been trying to work this in, and I thought my moment had passed, 
but since Benji likes to make a big deal against this, also mayo. It's on the menu. Those of us that love to slather a big swath of white on the bread with cheese and everything else, it's wonderful. You will not hear that again from a Grace pulpit for quite a while. <laughs> if you don't know, Pastor Benji hates mayo. Uh, he says it was condemned in the garden, I believe. If, I think that's a quote from one of his sermons a while back. Then, sorry those of you that are vegetarians, but he literally says, this is very tongue-in-cheek on my part, but the weak one is the one who only eats vegetables. <laughs> Do with that what you will. Remember, these are matters of opinion. It says you're welcome to eat only vegetables. Just don't get mad at your spiritual sibling that they like bacon and mayo. Even if it's not healthy for them, it's okay. And those of you that are enjoying a good bacon, lettuce, tomato, and mayonnaise sandwich, don't look down on those who can't have the mayo and bacon and are suffering with a lesser sandwich of just lettuce and tomato. They're welcome to do that. And if you prefer that, again, that was tongue-in-cheek. I really wanted to read it again, but I won't. I'm going to move on. Verse 3. Here's where it comes in, and he says, but, and don't despise each other. Don't divide churches over mayonnaise. Think of how stupid that would be. But then think of how many other stupid divisions we have had in our history. They're all over the place. And I don't just mean Baptist. I mean church history. Again, go back to the early church. Paul is having to tell Rome for an entire chapter and a quarter not to divide over veggies only or veggies plus. And he had to tell them because they were doing that, they're starting to fracture. And he's warning them, don't do that. And this one, verse 4, might be the, the key verse of the entire section. I'm going to read it again for this reason. If you catch nothing else, go back to four. It's the one I think we should memorize. There are a lot of other applications of this that come out in the rest of 14 and 15, but 14 verse 4, it says this, who are you to pass judgment on, an, on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Key verse, who are you to judge somebody else's servant? And by another's servant, we mean not your servant. And by another's servant and not your servant, we mean Christ's servant. You are not the boss. I am not the boss. We all follow Christ. He's the one that we stand or fall before. And then it emphasizes they will stand. They'll be upheld. We take them before Christ when we disagree, and we're not looking for how Christ is going to shout at them. We're expecting Christ to pick them up. At least that's what we should. Even if they're wrong, that's the spiritual reality. Romans 8 was just a few chapters before this. No condemnation and no separation for me means no condemnation and no separation for them if Romans 10, 9, and 10, they put their faith in Christ. I should be encouraged by that. If you and I are ever in an argument over opinions and we disagree, there may be a course we go forward in, but one of those things for both of us should be that we are thrilled that the other one is still secure in Christ. 
Even if we think they're the weak one and we're the strong one. Even when we're convinced I'm right and you're wrong, I still know this, you stand in confidence before Christ if you know him. That's the key verse. They will be upheld. Romans 8 is secured. And so are we. Because God is able to make them stand. So far from being judged, they are held up and embraced by Christ. That does not mean he won't discipline them if they are wrong. But that discipline is going to happen, that correction, that conviction is going to happen in embrace and not a casting aside. If it's two Christians that are fighting and one of them is wrong and one is right, it does not matter because Christ is going to embrace both of them and then handle them correctly and we can have confidence in that. And then in verse 5, he turns over two particular things that they were fighting over. Well, one, I guess. He's talking about food, but then in verse 5, he mentions that they're fighting over days. Saturday or Sunday. We've mostly landed on Sunday, but people still fight on this. You might bump into them from time to time. And I don't just mean Seventh-day Adventists, but I mean people that are, will, will show up and they'll say, no, the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years. We need to switch to su- Saturday morning. Like, well, we can. No, what do you mean we can? We must. That's what they did. Scripture a couple times weighs in and says, I don't care. Just keep meeting. Continue meeting together. You're a body. You're connected. You're supposed to meet and do communion. You're supposed to meet and preach the word. You're supposed to meet and care about each other. And then you're supposed to go out as ambassadors. And you can do that Saturday, and you can do that Sunday. You can do it Tuesday nights at youth group and Wednesday nights at Awana and whenever your small group meets and on Wednesday mornings for men's prayer and all the other times that happen. And maybe many of those, but not only meet as a church because you're also supposed to engage the world with the gospel. But why would you fight over which day to meet? Just connect with each other. And also observing or not observing holidays, probably talking about the Jewish holidays there, but of course, this is a meme. One of our former staff and college students likes to post this out, so this is mostly for him if he's paying attention, but you might have seen this meme, including whether or not Boxing Day in Canada is a pagan holiday that was instituted by Constantinople way back in the 400s. I don't even know because I'm not that good at history. Quit fighting over it. And we know the people that fight over those, but we forget that sometimes we fight over other ones of those. Instead, verse 5 tells us, each of us be convinced in our own mind. If you think it's Sunday, then you should go on Sunday. If you somehow become convinced that we need to return to Saturday, then you should find a place to meet with Christians and worship together on Saturday. Because that's what it's being argued about. But that doesn't mean you're right. It just means that's what you need to do because you're convinced of it. You can keep studying it, but you shouldn't fight somebody else about it and then call them not a Christian if they disagree with you. This is a disputable matter. Verse 8, here's another core. Maybe isn't the key verse, but it's a key to understanding how to proceed. We live or we die. We abstain or we engage to the glory of God. He said this earlier in Romans 13, 12 through 14. He mentioned this in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 and Colossians 3, 17. It's a theme of Paul. It's a theme of Scripture that everything we do is meant to be done as worship to God. 
Music worship is, is kind of like our pep rally for worship. We all come together, we sing, some of us do it well, some of us do it poorly, some of us do it super quietly, some of us raise our hands this way, some go full on, they put deodorant on every day of the week and they're thrilled about it, and other people are like, wait, we raise hands? I'm still trying to figure that one out. And the answer is yes, all of those. That's a focal point for worship, but it's not the only time we worship. Everything we do is worship. Choosing to eat bacon or not is worship if you do it the right way. Lord, I have the freedom to do this. They did not. So I'm going to enjoy this. Lord, I might have the freedom to, but I don't think it's healthy, so I'm not going to eat bacon. So you leave more of it for the rest of us. Whichever way you want to go with that. Do it to the glory of God. And he takes it all the way to live or die. Then, verse 10 through 12 says, we will give an account for our freedom. But a, kind of the better way that he puts it is, we're going to stand before Christ, but not in a condemnation way. He then turns in 11 to worship. We'll all stand before God and worship. And then, yes, he does come around to accountability. But don't forget verse 4. That accountability is an embrace. It is not a pushing away. The other thing you might notice in 10, and it mentions it a couple times here, is this is a brother. We're not fighting with a stranger. We're not fighting with someone that we're disconnected with. We're fighting with family, which is why it shouldn't be a fight. A conversation's okay. We can talk about these things if we can do it without dividing. But if we can't, then we should just focus on the fact we all stand before Christ and we will worship him together. And yes, we will give an account, but it isn't a terrifying thing it's that we stand before a master that enables us to stand with him. And he goes back to some particulars of how we live this out. Verse 13, quit judging, quit fighting. It's repeated throughout. But then in this time he says, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be something that in your freedom or your fighting, you trip up somebody else in their spiritual growth or their walk with God. Don't become a hindrance. I mentioned this a couple times in this series, my favorite, the, the Greek cheat sheet, um, Reinecker and Rogers, they, they state it this way, that it's a snare or the stick that springs the trap. So think of a mouse trap. It's the, it's the thing that sets it off, that triggers it. Don't be that triggering point. Don't be the thing that causes anybody else in this room or anybody else that claims Christ to fall or falter in their faith. It's a freedom, but because it's a freedom, you're free not to employ it. Especially if you're around somebody else and you know, oh, this is an issue for them. And I don't want to cause an issue for them. I don't want to be an issue for them. I would rather be what spurs them on in their faith than what causes them to stumble. But then he comes right back to freedom. In 14, he says, you're free. In all things, you're free. But if you're not convinced you're free, then you're not free. At that point, it's sinful for you. This is where Christianity becomes advanced religion. Something can be sinful for, for somebody else and not for you. And not sinful for somebody else, but sinful for you. Because you are unconvinced. 
Wrestle with that for a minute. If that's tricky for you to understand. Far from the Ten Commandments, which by the way still hold, this is God's moral standard. It's pretty basic stuff. This isn't etched in stone, and it's not an unjust parent. Romans has established that God is just, but like your parents, there might be a rule for the mature kid in the house that is different for the immature kid in the house. And kids, if you don't understand that yet, it's okay. But parents, you probably know what I'm talking about. Aunts and uncles, you've probably seen the kid where you're like, don't give that kid candy. The other kid has no rules on candy because they'll handle it appropriately. But that young person eats the entire bucket. And so they don't get the candy. Or they get it dosed out like medicine. Like, here's a very controlled substance. Here you go. <laughs> okay, now let's go outside and give you freedom to enjoy that energy that I just put into you. The rule, it's not that the rule changes, it's that you have a freedom, but if you don't think it's a freedom, you don't get to enjoy that. So don't. Verse 15, this is another one. Don't grieve each other. Put them first, even at your own loss. This is the Christian life. It's one of submission and sometimes personal loss for the benefit of other people. That's not abuse. That's a different category. Scripture's never calling us to be abused. It's a different thing, except perhaps in the name of Christ, suffering at the hands of an unjust world, okay? That's another category too. But in regular, healthy relationship, faith is not calling us to just suffer at the hands of abuse without addressing it or getting to safety. This is different. This is me choosing. I'm going to lose out on some freedom for the blessing of this other person that I care about more than that freedom. It's a relationship win. Instead of a relationship loss because, well, I'm able to, whatever the cost. 16, don't let your freedom be called evil. The word there actually is blasphemed. Don't let it be blasphemed. But it's saying, set it aside so it's not misspoken by somebody else. Verse 17, the kingdom is not a list of do's and don'ts. Instead, it's about enjoying righteousness and peace and joy. That should be the focus of our community. Verse 19, we pursue peace. And the building up of the body of Christ, when we're disagreeing each other, that should be our goal. That doesn't mean we don't take stands. We do. We choose a direction and we go, but that should be a goal. Peace and the building up of the other person. Verse 20, really simple. You might not have thought it was in Scripture, but this is my paraphrase of it, and it's from Scripture. So don't let your love for bacon trump somebody else's spiritual growth. Bacon's great, but it's not that good. If bacon gets in the way of my, or even mayo, gets in the way of my brother or sisters in Christ, actual following of Christ, then take it off my plate. That's what Paul's saying. Abstain, 21, abstain from your freedom if it will cause another to stumble. That one, it's like striking a stone in the path. So how do we understand all of this? We are free on matters of opinion and dispute. That's the truth. Paul declares that throughout. If God doesn't weigh in on it, then you're free to glorify God as you see fit in relationship with other people. And by the way, as 
typically conservatives in Baptist circles, not always, but typically, we are free on much more than we ever discuss or talk about most of the time. Especially if you look at Baptist history from the last 20 plus years going back. It's, I mentioned this before, but it's highly entertaining to talk about the kids that I work with, the young people that I work with, about the movie Footloose from the 1980s. They cannot understand that things have changed. But those of you that were around at the time and know that movie know how real it was even in regular culture, that the movie made sense. The remake makes no sense in the world because the world had changed since then, at least our part of the world. We have much more than we think, but that doesn't mean everything's free. If only for this, we are not free where we are not convinced that we are free. Paul's laying that out. If you don't believe you can do that, you're allowed to do that and honor God, then you're not to do that. But where we disagree, he says, don't fight. Certainly don't divide. In fact, if claiming the stronger ground, then we're to defer. If we're claiming freedom, which he weighs in on is indisputable matters, the means of grace, then we're to defer. So abstain when you're with others that you know are unconvinced or they are bringing it up and you realize they're unconvinced so that you don't unduly influence them. Abstain when you're with others that have sinned and continue to sin in an area of freedom. I'm going to use an example he uses, however you feel about this, but alcohol is a prime example of this one. If you're convinced of the freedom, Paul's advice, I think, is this. Don't drink around family that isn't convinced. Why cause the issue? You know, even if they don't bring it up, that they're struggling with it. Also, don't drink in the presence of a recovering alcoholic. You know they have struggled with it. Why would you tempt them? But then the other one is this. Don't try to sway your teetotaling friends. That's not your job. The Holy Spirit convicts us. You don't need to do that. In enjoying your freedom, you don't need to go around and convince every teetotaling Christian that they have the freedom to drink. You don't have to engage in that. You can enjoy your freedom without dabbling in those three scenarios that I just mentioned. This is a big I'm moving from that example, by the way, before I get you all mad. If you are against drinking, think Scripture is against drinking. Those of you who know me, I'm a personal teetotaler. I don't drink. For many reasons, I don't drink. Never have. So I'm moving away from that illustration. But there's a big unstated qualifier that I've seen in my lifetime as a Christian. I don't see it often, but often enough that while Paul doesn't say it, it's implicit in his argument, so I want to state it. If you are ever tempted to, in an argument, limit another's freedom by claiming the weak ground, Paul would tell you to grow up. Romans 14 is not the trump card we get to use by trying to be a mature Christian while claiming the weak ground to force our opinion. That make sense? If not, you can harass me by email later or talk to me in the hallways. We're not supposed to take Romans 14 and try to win the argument with a non-freedom. 
That's different from trying to use what we see in Scripture and God clearly saying that's a different thing. But if you are a mature Christian, we're not supposed to claim the weak ground. You can live out not enjoying that freedom if you think it exists, but you're not supposed to try to win the argument by saying, hey, you need to cater to my position, the weak one, and I've seen Christians do that. Maybe you haven't. But I've seen Christians say, I'm the weak one, like, okay, wait, wait, if you're the weak one in this, then that means they get to enjoy their freedom. And Paul would tell you to grow up, even if you're still abstaining. So don't go there. Paul is telling us to be patient with and, and defer, defer excuse me, to the genuinely weak Christian who has yet to understand their freedom in Christ. He's not telling us to cater to the grumpy old troll who lives under the bridge. This was never meant to defend tradition, Romans 14. That's how I've mostly seen it misused. He deals with that with the legalist in Galatia, in Galatia because that's what they were doing. Hey, you can't live that way. Tradition. They don't get to use Romans 14. It's meant instead to hold in check those who think they're strong but are really just too immature to understand their freedom and instead are trampling over everyone around them while boisterously sinning in the name of freedom, like Corinth. We have Corinth and Galatia. And then Romans 14 is coming in and he says, okay, you're fighting. Don't drift to Corinth or Galatia. If you can't resolve this and agree then here's how to proceed. Stop fighting. Don't divide. Move on. Now to some big stated qualifiers, things that hold us in check here. Verse 21, don't approve wrongly and earn discipline. Don't be wrong about your freedoms. If God clearly weighed in, then live that out. Those who enjoy their freedoms are at risk of being wrong about it, and they ought not. They ought to be very careful to make sure they've studied it and actually enjoy a freedom that they are embracing. On the other hand, verse 23, if you're unsure about a freedom, it isn't grace and holiness to just bulldoze ahead and not care about it. The holy action is then to abstain. That would be maturity, not weakness. To say, I'm not convinced. You might have the freedom, but I do not. So if it's not from faith and conviction that you're free, then it's sin. That means in a few areas, again, it can be sinful for you and not for other Christians. So we need to be cautious there. In 15.1 then, it says the strong are obligated to care for the weak. If you enjoy freedom and you encounter the others that do not enjoy the freedom, it is our obligation to cater to them and defer. That doesn't mean always when they have no idea and they're not around, but it does mean we need to pay attention to those who don't agree with us and defer to them even when it means giving up a freedom. It's implying a close relationship with the body, that we know them, that we care about them, and that we even know what they think on disputable matters when we're able to. And then finally, verse 3, it says, be Christ-like. It takes us back to Philippians 2, how we started the service. If Christ put others first, then we are too as well. The rest of Romans, there are, there's a whole lot 
and 15 and 16 that we're just leaving on the table. It mostly is just a big wrap-up on, on behalf of Paul. A, a massive chunk of it is him saying goodbye, or hello, rather. It's him saying hello to what feels like every single citizen in Rome, if you've ever read it, and it's your devotional reading for the morning. It's one of those meticulous sections of Scripture. It's not boring. There's actually a lot of amazing things in there, but it's a long list of names that he just says, Hi, hi, say hi to them for me, hello, how's it going, hi, say hi to them too. And it lasts forever. If you're unfamiliar with 16, go read it this afternoon. There are a lot of names in there. He also, though, tells them in 17 and 18, watch out for divisive people. In 15, that's chapter 16. Verse 15, verse 13, it says, may the God of hope fill you with joy, peace, and the power of the Spirit. And then my personal favorite in 16, chapter 16, verse 19 and 20, he tells us to be excellent at what is good, to be innocent of evil, and then he says he's going to crush Satan. It's an amazing way to end. It also, by the way, is one of my favorite 90s youth group songs that just a couple months ago I showed to, on the video, I showed it to our students and they all said it was dumb and cheesy. But I love it. It's a wonderful 90s song if you were ever in a youth group that sang it. Be excellent at what, as, at what is good, be innocent of evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Of course, we stomp then. God will crush him underneath your feet. And it's a rally song, and apparently now it's cheesy. But it reminds us that God will crush Satan. God has crushed Satan. Here's a couple ways for those of you who ever read that and wondered. First, he crushed him at the cross defeated and fully secured. By the way, pointing all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the curse and the snake biting the ankle and being crushed. He crushed him at the cross. Here's another reality, though. He's crushing him in Romans 16 in first century Rome. It's part of one of those now and later natures of a prophecy, or is a partial fulfillment and a fulfillment later on, but he's also crushing them later on in post-first century Christians like Santa Maria 2023. God is crushing Satan. This is later, and there's still more to come because ultimately he will crush him upon his return when it is fully realized and final. All of those are true from Scripture that he has crushed him, there's no battle between God and Satan that's still going on. That he is crushing him underneath the Romans' feet, underneath Santa Marian's feet, and that he will crush him upon his return. All four of those are true statements. And then he ends with a doxology again in 25 through 27, another doxology, and he points out that he is unashamed of the gospel by which God strengthens us, that is the good news for all nations, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we would enjoy and obey and worship the one and only great and amazing and mysterious and forgiving God. And that's how he ends Romans. To summarize, he ends Romans by saying, kids, Romans 14, don't make me pull the car over. And then he hops out of the car when they get to the reunion and he leads an eternal worship service. That's the end of Romans. Don't make me pull over. Maybe with a little bit of like swiping back, trying to catch a little bit of an ankle to get somebody's attention. 
while he's driving, and he pulls up to the family reunion, hops out, and says, let's join in worship, including with the kids that were just fighting in the back of the car. Let's worship our God. Wrapping all of this up in a little bit of wrapping up Romans as well. Romans 14 and 15, don't judge each other when we disagree. Do not condemn another Christian. That is not our job. There are moments when we're sharing the gospel that it condemns. That's in Romans 1 through 3. But it is not our job where we disagree with another Christian on things that God does not clearly spell out to look at them and condemn them. That is the bad brother on the back porch refusing to come into the party during the parable of the lost prodigal son territory, and you don't want to be there. That's in Luke 15 if you want to look it up. The prodigal son story is about two sons, not just one. And arguably, the second son is the primary focus. Don't miss out on grace because you're condemning somebody that God's throwing a party with. It's not our job. Don't judge each other when we disagree. Be certain, on the other hand, in the enjoyment of our freedoms. I enjoy this because God's allowed me to be free in this area. I'm enjoying righteousness and joy and hope and peace. I'm enjoying the fruit of the Spirit. I'm enjoying freedom in Christ, and I am inseparable from Him because Scripture's convinced me of this, and the Holy Spirit is guiding me in this freedom. Don't be flippant towards freedom. Instead, be confident in them. I believe I can enjoy this. I don't think God's weighed in on it. Instead, he's led me to enjoy the world he's placed me in and the people that I encounter. Be gracious even when we think Scripture is clear because, again, we always think Scripture's on our side. If you're a Christian and you don't think Scripture's on your side, the clear course is to change course. We're convinced we're following Christ. Hopefully, if not, we need to come back to his word and be convinced of which direction to go. And of course, when Scripture truly is clear, we must stand firm on it, unashamedly. Paul started with, I'm unashamed of the gospel. It's the power to save. Unshakable in that. But also, we need to not claim weak faith in order to win an argument. The answer there would be to grow up. And when you do disagree, here's my suggestion. It's from James 1. Use Scripture as a mirror. Now, James 1 is talking about me using Scripture as a mirror for me. That I would look in it and where I see that I need to, be, to change, that I would change and not just walk away like a love you all, but junior high boy that looks in the mirror and just steps out with no changes and probably forgot deodorant along the way. Don't be that. Look in the mirror and say, oh, I got a big old piece of, I don't know, green vegetation in my teeth. I need to brush and floss. Or I laid, those of you who have hair, it's a little tougher with those bald guys. I laid down last night and my hair is sticking up. I need to comb that into place and walk away changed. Hold scripture out as a mirror, first to yourself. But the second one is this, in the right relationship, you go to somebody and you say, I know you love God if they're a Christian. I know you love God, and you know that I love you. Here's what I see in God's word. And then you let them look in a mirror. That should be the extent of our fights most of the time. I read this. 
I know you care about him and his word, and I know you know I care about you. If you're not in that right relationship with somebody, by the way, you're probably not the person to point out an error in their life. There are times that you will still need to, but most of the time, wait for God to, to put the right person in their, in their position to say, hey, here's the mirror, let's walk it together. That's James 1. We aren't really used, supposed to use scripture as a weapon against another believer. That's not what the passage is about, the sword of God's word are talking about. Instead, here's what we do with everyone. And this comes out of Romans 14, comes out of other parts of scripture as well. If they're a non-Christian, take him to the feet of Jesus and share the gospel. Because the feet of Jesus is the right place for a non-Christian to be. Let me introduce you to my Savior and the gospel that has the power to transform. If it's an errant Christian, they truly are wrong. Take them to the feet of Jesus. And if they are a Christian, he will hold them up. And if and where needed, he will convict them. He might use you as a tool to lead another Christian in conviction, but it's not a weaponized conversation. It's a loving and a gracious one. And if you're disagreeing with another Christian who's a thriving Christian, you can take them to the feet of Jesus, but they probably beat you there because they already know it's the best place to be. That's a practical outworking of Romans 14. It's 14.4. I'm just going to take you to the feet of Christ. And you will stand because he will make you stand. And if you don't know Christ, you need to be at the feet of Jesus anyway. And let me introduce you to him, that you could someday stand and join with me in worshiping him, because he has made you stand. Because I understand the Romans road, that long-form gospel that Paul's explained, chapter 1 through 3, that we are all condemned, that nobody pursued God from the beginning. Chapter 4 through 6, that we are saved by the work of Christ, God pursued us and he saves us from our sin if 10, 9, and 10 we put our faith in him. Not there yet. That we are not condemned in chapters 7 and 8. That in chapters 9 through 11 we would confess that good news. That those of us who know it would share it as ambassadors with the world around us. And to anyone who does not yet know it, that's the gospel that we are condemned by our sin, but that Jesus saves and forgives us our sin, that any who would put their faith in him would be saved and enjoy eternal life. And Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, would you confess with me? It's an invitation. Would you confess with me that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he rose from the dead? And it's an invitation to each and every one of you if you don't know Christ. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. And in Romans 10, Paul says, would you follow him? And if you're not a Christian in the room, that invitation sits out to you literally this morning. Would you follow him? And if you would, turn to him and say, Lord, I confess that you are Lord. Save me. And that's how we start following Christ. Let's pray. Lord, mighty and holy, we praise your name.
of this we are unashamed that you are God and that you save and that you love us and that you forgive and that you are mighty and holy. And if we are fighting with a Christian, we know that in your arms they will be upheld because they know you and are secure and saved. And Lord, we thank you for that same truth about us, that we are secure in your hands and saved. Lord, I pray any in the room that if they did not know you when they walked in, that they would hear the truth of that gospel. That you are a God who offers reconciliation and that you forgive and that they would turn and confess and join us worshiping as one saved. Lord, we praise your name. Amen.